Hey everybody, it's Pastor Will. Welcome or welcome back to the Brazos Fellowship Podcast. Thank you for listening today. And at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast if you aren't already. But more importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Uh, This morning, we're going to continue a series that we started several weeks ago, back at the beginning of the year, called uh, Decisions That Determine Our Destiny. And we started the whole series by asking the question, how do we make the most of this time we have left? Whether it's a whole nother decade or more or less, we don't know how much time we have, but we want to make the most of that time that we do have. And so we looked at what is a great lens through which to evaluate our life, to look at every aspect of our life, some of the most important parts of our life. So we have taken this harvest principle that is taught throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the harvest principle simply says that you and I reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. And you can see this in every aspect of life. I'm sure that many of you have lived long enough that you've seen, yep, it's true, people do reap what they sow. And even if some of you are wise enough and have enough age and experience that even when your kids, your grandkids, nieces, nephews, and friends say, well, I don't know if this is true because I know so-and-so that definitely sowed some bad seed and hasn't reaped it at all, you are wise enough to say, just wait right? Just be patient. It always, people always reap what they sow. They reap only what they sow. The Bible's clear about this, and we tend to reap more than we sow, both good and bad. Bad seed, bad decisions reap bad harvests that that wind up lasting way longer than we think, costing way more than we think, being way more painful than we think. But good harvests can grow up incredible. Our good seed grows up incredible harvest that sometimes people, you get way more credit than you really are due for what you have done because it just created such a multiplied harvest in your life. Past decisions, past seeds that were sown created your current circumstance. Therefore, your current decisions are going to determine your future circumstance. And this, this uh, principle, simply put, assumes a correlation between our choices and the outcome of our life. It assumes it shows a relationship between our choices. And, and so, in a sense, this is the Bible just simply showing us that the best predictor of the future, God's showing us, the best predictor of the future is to ask, what am I sowing? What are you sowing right now in all areas? And this is what we've been doing the last several weeks. We've looked at our habits. We've looked at our belief systems. we looked at our friendship circles, the dreams that we are marinated on, that we, we were really focused on for the future. We looked at that last week. And today, we're going to take the same approach, but we're going to focus it on our thought life and ask the question, what thoughts are you sowing in your life right now? What thoughts do you go back to that tend to guide, direct your decision-making, your identity, and ultimately your destiny in this life? Because our thoughts really determine much of that. And one of the metaphors that we use a lot in our world today is we talk about thoughts being like a train. And we even say sometimes, oh, I've lost my train of thought. Have you said that before? I've definitely said that before. And it is true that thoughts are like trains. They take you somewhere. They have a destination. Boop, boop, right? You're getting on the train, and it's going to go someplace. And it's going to take you with it. And this morning, I want you to begin to think about it because this is what makes thoughts so powerful. Thought lives are so influential. 
And there's a landmark piece of research that was been done a few years ago by a Dr. Barbara Fredrickson from the University of North Carolina. It's been cited in many books, and maybe you've heard of it, but where she basically boils down after years and just, I don't know how many, hundreds of thousands of pieces of data looked at of what it takes or what determines the outcome of people's decisions in terms of the way they think. And she put, boiled it down into two camps, that there were negative thoughts and there were positive thoughts. And she said, in the negative thoughts, here's how we defined it. They were fear-based thoughts. Fear-based thoughts are what make us angry, what make us jealous, what make us sad and even depressed. It really comes from a place of fear. Of, we're, gonna, we're afraid of losing something or we're afraid somebody's getting ahead or something like that. And she said, here's the interesting thing about fear-based thoughts is that it, over and over and over, the research shows us it tends to close the human mind to possibilities, to conclusions, uh, to, to problems that we all face that those angry and kind of fear-based thoughts tend to close us up from being able to come to proper good solutions many times. And we make those decisions, and then we got to live with those decisions. But she says that there's also positive thoughts or positive people who tend towards positive thinking. And when she says, let me define what I mean by positive thinking, she goes, and it's essentially this. It's people who are joyful or grateful, right, or both. And like grateful down to your bones over what you've got in life or what you have, who you know, what, who God's put in your life, that kind of thing. And she says, and what's interesting about this joyfulness and gratitude, it does just the opposite to the mind. It like opens us up to possibilities, to solutions that other people miss. You're, you find that these people are far more creative they're better problem solvers. They're way more resilient when they go through adversity. They bounce back way quicker. And even in practical context, she said, students perform better academically when they're in this positive mindset or, or positive thinking. Physicians consistently make better medical decisions when they're in this frame of mind. Might, might want to pick your doctor carefully, right? It, there, there's, she goes on to say, it's interesting that people are in this frame of mind. They tend to come to, in negotiations, come to win-win solutions quicker. There, it's amazing how it affects every aspect. And when you are faced with people who are far different from you, politically, racially, you fill in the blank, religiously, whatever, that people are in this, this positive frame of mind, tend to find what unifies us, what makes us one quicker and see past all the differences as opposed to the negative thoughts that always look at what's, what causes us to be different. What, why are we not the same? And she says, and make no mistake, when I'm talking about these positive people that are thinking in a positive way, I'm not talking about people that are just going around with rose-colored glasses and don't actually see the world properly or realistically. They see the same world that the people who've chosen to have negative thoughts, they just see past the surface issues that most people miss into solutions and creative problem solving that most people do not see. And consequently, this type of thinking, it winds up shaping who they are and ultimately what they become, their destinies. This is part of the reason why I'm talking about this, because what's so fascinating about this current research is that it supports that something that God had 
one of his servants, King Solomon, write down about 3,000 years ago in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7, King Solomon, under the inspiration of God's Spirit, wrote this. And if you would, let's read the highlighted words together. He says, For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And I would say, as she thinks in her heart, so is she, as a dad of daughters, right? This is true of all of us. Solomon is basically saying, what you think about, what you dwell on, it becomes not only who you are, but it shapes who you become, your destiny. It's so powerful and so important for us to really think about what we think about. Really powerful. In other words, our lives will move in the direction of our strongest thoughts. It always does. Our strongest thoughts will dictate where our lives are going to go. And what's interesting is that Jesus touched on this same type of teaching in the New Testament when he was teaching on what the kingdom of heaven will be like. In the first gospel or first book of the New Testament, Matthew, chapter 25, Jesus is actually telling a series of parables, these symbolic stories teaching us about what it's like to be with God forever in heaven. Like the people knew what it was like to be in a earthly kingdom, a man-made, woman-made kingdom, but they didn't know what it was like to be in a heavenly kingdom. So Jesus is saying, let me show you what that's, how it is different. Let me show you what it's like. What is God looking for? What is he going to hold us accountable for? And Jesus begins to unpack this in this incredible parable. And he tells us this uh, in chapter 25, starting with verse 14. He says, again, it will be like it being the kingdom of heaven, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags of gold, and to another one bag. Now, real quick, your translation of the Bible might call it talents. And a talent was literally the about equivalent to about 20 years wages of a day laborer back then, right? So it's a lot, this is a lot of money, that one bag of gold. So he's leaving them a lot. Even the guy with one bag of gold, it was equivalent to, you know, thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars probably in today's money. And so he says, and each of them, he gives each of them according to his, let's say it together, his ability, right? And, and I think it's important that Jesus says that, that he gives according to his ability. So therefore, if any of these three servants fail, it's not because they were overwhelmed is because either they were lazy or they didn't respect or love their master, right? So then he went on his journey. So the master leaves, this, this owner leaves, and he leaves them in charge of these bags of gold, these talents that he's left with them. So we're told that the one that had five and two went out and did the identical same thing. They went out and they thought to themselves, again, thought processes, they went out and said, I'm going to go out and invest this well. I'm going to double the money. And that's exactly what they did. Five became ten. Two became four. But the one, the guy with the one bag, he was scared. He went out, got his trusty shovel, and he digs a hole in the ground. Just digging, digging, digs a big hole, throws the bag of gold in there, and then covers it back up. And all right, that'll be safe right there. I'm gonna, he just waits. He just sits on the money, does nothing with it the whole duration of his master's journey. And then the master comes back and he holds the three servants accountable for what they did with what he gave them according to their 
ability. The first two guys, the one with five and two, both came to him and said, look, I went out and invested it, and I doubled it, and here it is, your money plus it's doubled. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been tr- you've been trustworthy with a little. I will bless you with much. Come and enter into your, your master's happiness, into your master's joy, another translation may say. But the one with one, here's exactly what was said, starting with verse 24. It says, and then the man who had one, had received one bag of gold, came, Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was, let's say it together, so I was afraid. My inner dialogue, my thought life was one of fear-based decision-making, okay? And went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here it is. What belongs to you? His master replied, now check this out. You wicked, lazy servant. I mean, Jesus knew how to get the attention of his audience, to which probably many of his audience members, they would have probably said, what? Wicked, lazy? He didn't steal from him. He gave back every dime that he gave him. Wicked, lazy? Why was he wicked and lazy? Not because he felt feelings of fear. That's not a sin, to feel feelings of fear. It is, however, what Jesus is saying, is to live according to that fear. To let that fear dictate your decisions for your life. And therefore, the outcome, the destiny, that's what this metaphor was all about. These servants had been given gifts, talents, treasure, time, like all of us have been given. God says, is this Jesus' way of saying, we're accountable for what we've been given. Don't squander it. Make the most of it. And don't let your fear cause you to say, I'm just going to sit on this. I'm not going to invest it. I'm not going to give it. I'm not going to do anything with it. Jesus is showing us in this really powerful testimony that in both ways, both the one who had the one that did nothing with it It was a mental process. It was his thought life that dictated what the ultimate result or destiny of his life was. The ones who went out and duplicated, doubled the money, it was because they believed that that was possible. They went out and trusted God with it, ultimately. They went out and invested it well. In other words, Jesus is showing us that we are accountable for our thought life. In other words, and this might be news to you, you are not a victim to your mind. You are in control of your mind. You are not this helpless child to this huge adult that just says, you're coming with me. You're going to do whatever I say. you got to get on the train and go wherever the train is going. Jesus is saying, no, you do not. You actually are the engineer of the train. You determine where it goes. You decide. This is one of the most important battlegrounds for the destiny of your life is your mind. It's where battles are won or lost every day. And it is one of the most powerful spiritual battlegrounds of your life as well that you must learn to fight against your spiritual enemy, Satan. And I want to talk a little more about this because the Apostle Paul takes what Jesus teaches about this. And Jesus talks a lot about the spiritual warfare or the spiritual dimension of our thought life and our, our, the spiritual dimension of just this life. And Paul takes it and helps us to begin to understand 
an even further uh, application of how we are to live this out every day. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The, let's say it together, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take, let's say it together, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, I love this. He's saying, now, let, me, let me tell you, not just that there is a spiritual battle going on in your mind, but let me give you a strategy for how to win it. I want you to capture and reject every thought that contradicts God and His Word. I want you to capture and reject every thought that contradicts God and His Word. So incredibly important to keep that in mind. That it's not just trying to just think good thoughts. It's like saying, I'm going to capture these lies, these deceptions that come into my life is it's so important that we identify them for what they are. And we can't know that if we don't really know God and we're not talking to Him and asking for His help. Let me ask you this, uh, and just think about it for a minute. Because a lie, if we believe it, a deception, if we believe it, is incredibly destructive in our life. It never even has to be true. Think about this for just a second. If somebody believes that their spouse is unfaithful to them, that they are cheating on them. Does it ever have to actually be true in order to destroy their marriage? Yes or no? No. It never has to be true. All it requires is for you to believe it's true. And you'll destroy it all on your own with your decisions. And it becomes a part of your story, your destiny. It's so important that we take thoughts captive what is God's truth about this? And it's important that we don't just go through life saying, well, I'm just hoping for the best. God's saying, no, there's so much more available to you in this process of following me. And, and let me just pause for a moment. I think it's probably a good point in the message to just define for a minute who Satan is. Jesus spoke about him so much. He is not a myth. He is not a legend. He is not a metaphor. He is a very real spiritual person that Jesus spoke about and warned about. He is a fallen angel who rebelled against God and became corrupted by his own pride and became an enemy of God and also an enemy of you. So now what is he up to? His only objective is to hinder the work of God in your life and in mine. He wants to get you to not trust God or His Word. He wants you to be afraid of God. He wants you to stay back from God. And He wants you to never identify or know that He was ever there. And it was just all on your own. It was just what you chose. And that's what He wants. Manipulation. Now let me, now let me just be real clear. Satan cannot read your mind but he can't read your actions. There's nothing in Scripture that says that Satan can read our minds, but he certainly can plant seeds of thoughts in our minds, and he can watch our actions 
As a matter of fact, when you think about the study of psychology, the study of human behavior, and as it relates to the human mind, there's nobody that has more backlog of research on the human behavior than him. He's been watching us from the very beginning, and he sees a lot of patterns. People tend to fall to the same stuff over and over, whether it was 2,000 years ago or today. It's amazing how similar we are. We tend to fall in the same places, and he knows that. And he's going to use his um, other fallen angels that are called demons, that's what Jesus called them, to begin to manipulate us. As a matter of fact, um, this warfare that I talked about, the spiritual warfare, it happens more in our minds than anywhere else. And he's going to use these demons to do that. So you may be asking, wow, demons, okay. So what do demons do? Great question. They do one thing. They tempt us to sin. That's what they do. Jesus was very clear about that. That's, that is their one and only job, but they are masterful at it. So how are they so effective? Because they really haven't changed their strategy all that much, all through human history. Here's how they're so effective. I'm going to let you in on a little secret, okay? They tend to minimize sin on the front end, and they maximize sin on the back end. They will do this to you, they'll do it to your children, your grandchildren, they'll do it to everybody, right? And let me explain what I mean by that. They minimize sin on the front end. So when you're faced with a temptation, the thoughts that will come to your mind will be like, there's really nothing wrong with this. It's my life. It's my choice. I want to be happy. You deserve to be happy. Go ahead, YOLO, you know? You only live once. Get out there. Live it up. Enjoy, right? That's on the front end. As soon as you commit the sin, everything changes. How could you do this? Look at you. God's not going to forgive you. Look at what you've done. God would never use a person like you. You are damaged goods. You're no good. To, not only would God not want you, nobody's going to want you. You're going to have to live in secret. You better keep this a secret the rest of your life. Don't tell anybody or they will not love you. They won't be near you. They won't trust you. You're a horrible human being. You can't be trusted. Some of you live with that inner critic. It's not just a single inner critic. It feels like a jury speaking at you all the time, judging you constantly. You're not enough. You can't be good enough. You need to be more. You, you, you're horrible. You're not an, God can't use somebody like you over and over. Let me ask you a question. Do you struggle with crippling accusations in your mind? Many, many people do. Let me just say something really, I hope that you hear this, just to clarify. That is not God. That is not God. It is the one who tempted you to sin in the first place. He has brought you full circle. And what happens for so many people is that once they commit the sin, then there's the guilt and shame that sets in, so they pull back and they isolate. I don't want to go to church. I don't want to be around people. Feeling like this, I feel horrible about myself. And when you feel horrible about yourself, what are you looking to do? You just want to feel good, even for just a moment. So the temptation comes again. Well, you know what will make you feel good for just a moment? Just come on back. Try it again. And as soon as you do it, there you are again. Another beat down. And down, this is how addictions start. And this is how they're maintained. This is his strategy. And it is crazy effective. I see it tear apart men and women all the time. It breaks my heart. 
Please know this is exactly what he's trying to do to your life, exactly what he's trying to do to your children and your grandkids, everybody you care about, and even the people you don't. He's trying to do this to them. And what's interesting, the name Satan, literally from Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, his name means accuser. That's what his name means. And he says in this verse that he accuses the brothers and sisters before the Lord all day long. This is what he's doing constantly. And I just want to encourage you, don't just take this, that this is one of those things that you're struggling with right now and you're feeling constantly accused, you're not good enough, you're just, you feel those dark negative thoughts coming in your mind, fear-based thoughts of anger and jealousy. You're angry with yourself over what you've done. You're jealous of other people's situations. I wish I had their marriage. I wish I had, they had this guy's income. I wish I had, I wish I had. If I did, my life would be better. God, you owe me better. Why did I have dealt these cards instead of those? cards and we get angry at ourselves, God, others, everybody. It's just a downward spiral. You feel yourself getting caught in that at times? I want to encourage you to use the weapons that God has given us. Let me list them for you. Prayer, faith, hope, love, God's Word, and His Holy Spirit. These are so incredibly powerful. You may be looking at those going, what? What difference will those make? I'm telling you, they are more powerful than you can possibly imagine. We just don't use them. They radically change people's life. I see it all the time. People who say, I'm going to commit to pray every time I get under attack. God, help me to take captive these thoughts. Everything that contradicts you and your word. And that means you've got to start getting to know what the word says. What is God's Bible? What does his word say? Start reading it. Begin with the gospel. Start reading through the story. Let God and his word begin to sharpen your understanding. And what's crazy is that prayer will lead to greater faith and hope and love of God and what he wants for your life. And it is his word that will sharpen you and his Holy Spirit that will use all of it, that will drive you closer to him and make you better able to fight off the enemy's attacks in your mind. And you can teach others, your kids, your spouse, your friends, how to do this too. It's not that complicated. Just not many people are willing to actually do it. Now, the question is, you may be asking, so how do we change this fear-based thinking? Such a great question. And one of the most simple and straightforward ways that I find in the New Testament is in the writing of Paul. It's in his first letter to the Thessalonian church. Chapter 5, verse 16, and, and right here, this is one of the first letters that Paul ever wrote. It's very old, A.D. 51. This means it was less than 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So many of the witnesses of Jesus' resurrection still walking around and are part of this church, many of them probably. Um, and here's what Paul says. So when you get under these kinds of attacks, what sort of thing? And people are asking the same question back then that you may be asking now, like, what is God's will for my life? Especially in this kind of an area, what does God actually want me to do? And he lays it out real plain. Let's take a look at it together. He says, always be, let's say it together, always be joyful, never stop praying. Wow, that's a big one. That's like an ongoing conversation that's just like, you know, dot, 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 all the time. Okay, God, I'll pick it up again in just a minute, right? Never stop praying. Be Thankful in all circumstances, even in really tough, difficult, hard circumstances, find something to be thankful for. It's a discipline. 
But it is powerful what it does to our heart. For this is God's will for you. Wait, what? He's getting into it right now. This is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. What is God's will for you? Joyful always. Pray continually. And to be thankful in all circumstances. Inside this blueprint, God will do everything else in your life. But just make sure you begin here. Make sure these are true of you. Now, this is really fascinating. Some of you may remember way back, Dr. Fredrickson's research I spent at the beginning, that her, all the research that she had done, those positive thinking processes that made for the best results in people's lives were people who were joyful and thankful. Gratitude, you remember that? That's what the research bears out. This was written 2,000 years ago. Be joyful always. This is the way God has wired us. Of course it would come out in the research. It's the way it's always, it's always been true of us. It's fascinating. And what's really cool about this is that another researcher right here at the University of Houston, Dr. Brene Brown, who's done extensive research on this particular item, uh, topic of, of hope and about joy and about gratitude, she said over 12 years of research, here's what we found. Every person that we've interviewed that was genuinely joyful, without exception, every single one of them had a disciplined habit of gratitude. They either kept a gratitude journal or the prayers to God, things I'm thankful for God. They went around the dinner table after grace and everybody said what they were thankful for. Somehow, some way, they've incorporated it into their life and it created joy. She goes, I'll be honest. I was one of the first to say, I thought it was the other way around. I thought joyful people were really grateful, but actually it's the other way around. It's not joy that makes us grateful, it's gratitude that makes us joyful. If you want to change your whole outlook on life, take time daily to pray continually. Thank God all the time for what He's doing in your life. Find things. It's a discipline. It's not going to be easy at first, especially if you're used to being pessimistic and you're always looking at the negative and you're always griping about stuff. Okay, I'm telling you, that's going to have a dire effect on your life. You've got to begin to develop a discipline to say, God, thank you. Telling other people eye to eye, thank you for doing that. Thank you. I'm so grateful for you. That's incredible. Now, for some of you, when you first start this, people are going to think you've been drinking or something, right? <laughs> like, this is not like you to say this. And you could just say, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm trying something totally new. Just go with me, okay? I'm trying, I, I, this is a whole new approach. I'm trying to cultivate a heart that God wants for me. This is God's will for you who are in Christ Jesus. This is not just like a suggestion. This is a command he's telling us. So important that we look for ways to do this. And when you begin to do this, ladies and gentlemen, I know this sounds like I don't know if this will work, but I'm telling you, it's God's Word, and it works, and it's powerful. I've seen it in my own. I keep a prayer journal daily. I've seen how it has radically changed my perspective. As a leader, as a dad, as a husband, I'm telling you, it works. And here's the prayer of application I'm asking you to pray with me today. Simply put, Jesus, help me to identify where I, where you are under spiritual attack, and to take captive every thought to make it obedient to you. Help me to identify it first of all and find out the truth about it and submit it to you. Today, I choose joy through gratitude. That's how you get there. You get to joy through gratitude and to belong to you. That it is God's will for those who belong to Christ Jesus. 
Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in the Brazos Valley, we would love for you to engage with us at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our fabulous children's and student environments, visit us at brazosfellowship.com. That's brazosfellowship.com.